0: I also wish everyone a very happy Father's Day, especially to the dads who are here today. Uh, Let's give our dads a big round of applause. uh... (laughs) Congratulations on doing the second most difficult job in all the world, after mothers, of course. But so it's one of those things that we sometimes overlook. And now Father's Day, we recognize, can be a great, joyous day for many dads. And for many families, it's a happy, happy time. But let's be honest, Some for some of us and for some of our families, Father's Day isn't the most happy time. Sometimes it brings up memories of a difficult situation with our fathers here on earth. Sometimes it brings up memories of a father that we've lost, that we miss terribly. Sometimes it brings up memories of a father who maybe wasn't the best when it came to loving us or caring for us. But it's so great to come into the presence of God and understand what a father can be like, isn't it? To understand the love of what a father is and to see how loved we really are every single day, whether we realize it or not. And that's the great part about coming into church and and, and hearing the word of God and worshiping God and understanding that there is a father who loves us above and beyond any father could ever love. And that's one of the most amazing things that we get to experience every day. For just a minute, I want to share something to the fathers that are here this morning, especially to you, because this is a ministry and a role that we sometimes take for granted. This is a role that we sometimes ignore, and we simply can't. We simply can't ignore the power, the impact, and the importance of the role of fatherhood that God has placed on men all around the world, but especially men, Christian men, how important that role is. I'll give you an example. I've heard thousands of sermons my entire life. I grew up in a church and I listened to sermons all my life. But I'll tell you, not one of those sermons, while they were good and they were helpful or beneficial in my life, not one of those sermons influenced me to stay as a child of God or as a follower of Christ more than watching my father did. And it's so important that every day we recognize the importance of the role model and example that we must be to our children, especially fathers, to their sons and fathers, to their daughters, so that they may understand what has God called you to be or what has God called you to in terms of your future spouse. That's the magnitude of being a dad and being the importance of being a father. Science and research continues to show us how important fathers are in society, and we sometimes ignore it, sometimes forget it. Let's be honest. Television often portrays fathers as idiotic morons that don't know what they're doing. They're, they're fools. They're often the butt of the joke in the, in the sitcom or in the show we're watching. But God was not fooling around when he created the family and he put fathers in the role that he put them in to lead the spiritual direction of the household and to say this is the highest priority in this household that we will follow Christ and I will set the example. I will set the tone for how we follow Christ. And I encourage you all, fathers, this morning, this is not a morning of guilt and shame. This is a morning to start over if we haven't been doing that. And I know there are areas we can all improve when it comes to directing the spiritual direction of our households the spiritual direction of our children you know data keeps showing us that houses where fathers are absent or fathers are not a part of the situation fully we see that violence goes through the roof in those households or those children are more prone to see violence in their lifetimes we know that those children are more likely to drop out of school we know those children are more likely to commit a crime or be incarcerated later in their lives when a father is not really in the life in that situation wholeheartedly So I encourage you all, dads, it's not just about that. It's also about directing the the spiritual future of your children and directing the spiritual life of your families wherever possible. Let's make that a priority as we go forward. I want to take a minute to pray for our dads this morning before we go into the Word of God. Let's pray for our fathers. Heavenly Father, we know that you have placed fathers in a very unique and special role in the household so that we may bring glory and honor to you, Lord God, that we follow the headship of Christ, we follow the lordship of Christ, and we try to live that example to our children, to our families, to our wives, to the, the city and the communities around us, Lord. Lord, I lift up every father that is in this place right now, every future father that is in this place right now, every grandfather that is in this place right now. Lord, I pray that your blessings, that your Holy Spirit, that your strength would be upon them, Lord God, that you would give us the wisdom, the discernment to live as role models and examples in a generation that lacks strong male leadership at many times, that lacks the ability to really impact a future generation, Lord. And I pray that the men of this community, the men of Mount Hope, would be men of valor, men of integrity, men of hope, men that would step out and, and lead the way that you've called us to lead, Lord. I pray a special blessing on our fathers today as we go forward, even in the places we've messed up, in the places we've fallen short. I pray that you would help us to make a turnaround and let that turnaround begin today. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning we're going to continue in what we've been learning in the book of Romans, in the letter of Paul to the church in Rome, and how specifically Paul is dealing with one of the most important issues that were taking place in that time, in that day, as he was dealing with some of the believers who were Jewish and who are now followers of Christ. And so we're going to read from the book of Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21 this morning. Romans chapter 5 verses 12 through 21 we read there like this therefore just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin and in this way death came to all people because all sinned to be sure sin was in the world before the law was given but sin is not charged against anyone's account when there is no law Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who was a pattern of the one to come. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many?" Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man the many will be made righteous. The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. If you were with us last week, Pastor Brian so beautifully walked us through what we called Vision Sunday, where we as a church established our vision, the purpose that God has called us to here in the town of Belmont, and how God is calling us to accomplish a specific plan, a specific vision here in this community. And now while vision was the key word last week, this week the key word is going to be perspective. Vision to perspective. And this morning we'll be talking about perspective, specifically the importance of understanding the perspective of what God did for us. And I believe this wholeheartedly, and we as a church need to embrace this, that until we fully grasp, until we start to grasp the perspective of what God did for us, we will never be able to do any of that for anyone else. And that for it has to start inside us, and perspective is one of the most important things being discussed in the part of Scripture that we read this morning. I want to give you an example of what perspective looks like. As I mentioned earlier, Pastor Brian and Lori are out in Italy right now, and they actually mentioned that this week they'll be heading to the Sistine Chapel, that beautiful, beautiful work of art uh, completed by Michelangelo where he was able to paint the ceiling so beautifully and and to do such great work in that ceiling. Now imagine that Pastor Brian and Lori walk into that building and they look at one little tile, one little part of that, cha- of that ceiling, of that chapel. Now it's beautiful. It looks great. If they just stared at this one little tile, it's, it's a nice piece of work. It's a nice piece of art. But they'd never fully appreciate the whole thing unless they stepped back and started to see a broader view of what that ceiling looked like, that ceiling in its glory and its beauty, when they look up and they can see the entire painting that was there. And then unless they step back even further and look at the walls and look at the entire ceiling, will they get a full understanding of how marvelous this work really is, that every inch of that building is painted so beautifully with not only works of history, but works straight from the Bible painted all over that building. If they focus on one tile, they may enjoy that one tile, but they'll never enjoy the magnitude of the whole thing unless they have a perspective of the entire thing. And this morning, the call to each of us is to step away from looking at the little tile that is our lives, the little part that is our lives, and to step back and to see the magnitude of what God is doing all over the world, but specifically how God has called us to impact the entire world. And we're taking a step back because perspective is so important. Perspective is important. It's also important to understand the heart of what God is calling us to do through this passage. Let's imagine for a second that you and I walked into the Sistine Chapel and we looked at the ceiling, the walls, we looked at the beauty and the magnitude of that work of art. Now all of us, if we walked in there or we walked into any art museum, can look around and each of us can stand there, stare at a painting, and we can all determine within our own abilities what the artist was trying to do. We can look at the, the, the certain lines, the brush strokes, the way something is portrayed, the way a face is painted, and we can try to interpret that work of art. And if 10 of us gathered in a museum and looked at a work of art, 10 of us could have 10 different interpretations of that work of art. But if we wanted to know the truth, the heart, the reality of that work of art, and what was intended, what would we have to do? There's only one option. We would have to ask the artist to find out exactly what this means, isn't it? And this is what we do when we come here on Sunday. When we, when we get into the presence of God every day, it's, we are asking the artist, what is your purpose? What was your design? Not my perspective, but your perspective on the entire situation. And when Paul is writing to the church in Rome, he is begging with them. He's pleading with them. Stop looking at everything from just your perspective. Do you not see the big thing that God is doing in this world, that God was doing from the beginning of time? Do you have a grasp of the large picture, the big, overarching, amazing plan of God from the beginning of time? And unless you have that perspective, you will miss the greatness of what God is doing. And so he calls the church, to get some perspective. If you ask around this world today, people will tell you all the time that all religions are the same. They basically point to the same thing. They're all basically the same thing. They might do things slightly different, but they're all ultimately the same thing. When you have a little perspective, you start to realize that there's something deeper than just thinking that all religions are the same. In fact, uh, Ravi Zacharias, a very famous preacher, a very famous uh, apologist in the Christian world has said it like this, all religions are the same. They only differ on sin, salvation, heaven, hell, the character of God, and about a thousand other things. Do you guys see what happens here? What are we doing? We think overall that all religions are the same, but Paul is telling the church in Rome there is something that's been happening since the beginning of time that unless you have perspective on that, everything else will not make sense because you will just see the little tile in your world and never step back and see the grand plan that God is unveiling every single day. The uniqueness of Christianity is this, is that it's not focused on us and what we can do. It's focused on a plan that started in the Garden of Eden and that continues to this very day, a plan that you and I are a part of, but unless we have perspective, we miss it completely. So this morning, rather than just focusing just on Romans chapter 5, I want us to keep in in mind what took place in Romans 5, where Paul says that just as sin entered the world through Adam, just as death and disobedience entered the world through Adam, righteousness, justification, and life entered the world through Jesus. I want us to keep that in mind. But this morning, we're going to step away from Romans, and we're going to look at the big picture, the big perspective of what's been taking place since the beginning of time. Because just as we read this morning, it all pointed to a gift that was greater than any sin, any trespass that we could have committed. And this morning, we are going to develop a perspective on grace. So let's begin right at the beginning. If you have a Bible with you today, let's do a quick little bit of Bible quiz, a little bit of what takes place here. Does anyone, can anyone tell me how many books are in the Bible? 66. Very good. Nice job. 66 books in the Bible. Now, this may sound like what the kids are learning downstairs, but I promise there is a reason for this. 66 books in the Bible. Does anyone know how many human authors were in, 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 responsible for the 66 books in here? It's a little jeopardy right now for us. 66 books written by how many authors? 40. Very good. We have about 40 authors wrote the 66 books of the Bible. How many years from the beginning to the end of the Bible, how many years did it take to complete the, the entire canon? Anyone know? About 1,500 years, from beginning to end, about 1,500 years. So we have 66 books, we have 40 authors, we have about 1,500 years from beginning to end. How many stories are in the Bible? This is a tough one. There are thousands of people, thousands of stories in the Bible, but there's only one narrative in the Bible. Do you understand what I mean by that? There are thousands of people, thousands of people's lives that are involved here. But there's only one narrative, one overarching story taking place from beginning to end. And if we want perspective on grace, we need perspective on that one overarching narrative. And it starts in the book of Genesis with the man that Paul mentions in in Romans chapter 5. That man is Adam, of course. So a perfect God, a God without sin, a God without fault, decides to create humanity, decides to create all things, and puts man in a garden, a perfect paradise. Why? Not to establish a religion, but to establish a relationship with his creation. God creates man in his image so that they can have relationship together. But man does something that Paul mentions in the book of Romans. Man does something that breaks the relationship. The one thing that a just God cannot allow, a perfect and holy God cannot allow, man sins, he disobeys, he eats of the fruit of the tree, and he is separated from God. This is what sin is. It's a separation, a breaking in the relationship between us and God. And now God, who desired nothing more than relationship with man, suddenly has to deal with a new paradigm has to deal with a new order of things that man does not want to be in this relationship anymore. And so God has a choice. I can destroy man completely, but I am a loving God. Or I can allow this sin to take place, but I'm a just God. And there is something there that separates us completely from God, and so God rejects the man and the woman and has them go out of the garden, but he does not stop loving them. And grace begins to enter the world and we start to see the power of grace right from the beginning of time. In fact, when God is in the garden, and you remember this in Genesis 3, when he's speaking to the serpent, the one that had deceived the man and the woman, he speaks to that serpent and he uses a verse that actually serves as the first piece of prophecy in all of Scripture where we read like this. I will put Genesis chapter 3 verse 15, I will put a separation, he's speaking to the serpent, between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. It might sound a little weird, a little odd, but here's what God was doing. Right from the beginning in the garden when man was separated from God, God prophesied right there from the beginning that although man may be separated from me right now, I will make a way. I will find a way to reconcile, to reconnect this relationship that I want more than anything else. I want to be in relationship with humans, and I want this to happen, and I will make this happen. I will find a way to make this happen, and I will crush the head of the serpent when the offspring of woman which we all know who that is, and I'll talk more about that in a second, when the offspring of woman will come and crush the head of the serpent, God laid the groundwork for grace right in the garden. God laid the groundwork for reconciliation right in the garden. God laid the groundwork for reconciliation and peace and happiness and joy and a relationship with him after man had sinned and separated himself from God. The sin of Adam and the disconnect in the relationship with God gave us a sinful nature that Romans talks about, that Paul talks about in the book of Romans, that we have a sinful nature right from birth, that we have a propensity to sin, we have a desire for sin, we have a sinful nature. I've once heard a pastor say like this, we are not sinful because we sin, but we sin because we are sinful. Let me say that again. We do not sin. We are not sinful because we sin. We sin because we are sinful. There is a nature inside of us right from the get-go that does not really want to do what is right, that would prefer to do what is wrong, and that sinful nature right from Adam exists even to this very day. Now, it can be tough to understand that. Why would I be connected to Adam's sin? But I'll get more into that in just a little bit. But Adam and Eve sin in the garden. They separate themselves from God. And with that separation, with that separation required a plan of reconciliation. And God makes that happen. And here's how Pastor Tim Keller puts it. Here's the gospel in a nutshell. It's that you are more sinful than you ever dared believe. But you're also more loved than you ever dared hope. Let me say that again. You are more sinful than you ever dared believe. But you are more loved than you ever dared hope because there in the garden thousands and thousands of years ago God who saw us in advance loved us in advance right after man decided to separate himself from God God finds a way to make that relationship happen again but it doesn't happen overnight Generations pass. Years pass. Many new lives enter into this. Many new people enter into this equation. Remember again, God had an option here. I can wipe out all of mankind. They violated the law, the relationship that we had. They violated it. But that's when grace and mercy, two words we've talked about a lot in this setting, grace and mercy step in. Remember again, mercy is when a punishment that we deserve is withheld from us. So we deserved a punishment and mercy says that uh, that punishment is being withheld. But grace is when there is a gift that we do not deserve that is lavished upon us. Do we see the difference in the two words there? Mercy is a punishment that we did deserve that is withheld. Grace is a blessing or a gift that we did not deserve that is given to us. And so as we step back even further and put a little perspective around what's going on, now here's man completely separated from God and God building a way back to man God, using his grace to come back and build that relationship up, he calls out one man in the middle of the wilderness to connect with and build a relationship with again. We find him later in the book of Genesis. That man is Abraham. And God calls Abraham a man with no children, a man very old in age, and he calls Abraham and says, Abraham, if you put your faith and your trust in me, if you believe against all hope that I can do a miracle in your life, then I will turn you into the father of many nations. I will make you great. I will make your name great, that every person in the future will have a connection back to you if you simply believe in me. And so God calls Abraham, rather than destroy the world, a God who makes a promise with Abraham. And God makes an amazing promise. It's, what co- it's what's called a covenant with Abraham. And when you get home, read through Genesis chapter 15, you'll see a lot about what this covenant looks like. In the Old Testament times, there was a process, a covenant-making process, a covenant-making process that simply had one person on one side, another person on the other side, and the two sides were making an agreement. They were making a bond, a covenant between themselves. Oftentimes, the covenant was made with a greater person, a king or a ruler, and a lesser person, what was called a vassal or a suzerain. These people were lessers, and there was the greater on the other side. And typically what happened was that the vassal, the lesser person, would have to come and bring a large animal, a cow or a sheep, a large animal, and they would slaughter the animal between them. There had to be the shedding of blood in order for the covenant to take place. And so the animal would be torn into two right in front of them. And it was the job of the lesser, the suzerain, the vassal, to walk through the bloody pieces of the, of the meat that was separated and head up to walk through, and his footprints would leave blood on the sand, and he would say out these words, that if I violate the terms of this agreement, may I be like this creature that is on the floor in front of me. And in Old Testament times, that's how a covenant or a, or a bond was created between two sides. But in Genesis 15, God flips the script. And if you read that portion carefully, you'll understand that once again, God makes a covenant with Abraham. Who is the greater in that situation? God is clearly the greater. And who's the lesser? Abraham is the lesser. But what God does is there's an animal that's split in two and the presence of God walks through the two pieces of the animal and he makes a covenant with Abraham that I will not violate the terms of this covenant, you will not violate the terms of this covenant. But even if you and your generations violate the terms of this covenant, I will pay the price if you violate the terms. And once again, God is putting everything into perspective. Grace is bigger than you understand. That I will take on the penalty for the sins that you commit. And so a separation is taking place, but Abraham is learning a lesson that this God wants to be in relationship with me. There's another story in Abraham's life that you all remember where God calls him to sacrifice his son up on a mountaintop. And when they get to the mountaintop, Abraham, who obeys God and trusts God fully, raises his hand to sacrifice his own son that he waited a lifetime for in the presence of God for God. And God holds back Abraham's hand and says, do not strike the child, Abraham. It was a test of Abraham's faith at that moment. But what was the greater message? If you step away from Abraham and Isaac's life, what's the greater message? You may not have to sacrifice your son for the sake of this relationship, but one day I will sacrifice my son for the sake of this relationship. It was, again, a calling to the bigger perspective of how magnificent grace really is. A gift that is not like the trespass Pass a gift that we did not deserve. A couple of years ago, there was a massive terrorist attack in Mumbai, India. And I remember a story that came out of that terrorist attack in the news shortly after it happened. For a few days, terrorists had walked into the city of Mumbai and started shooting up places where many people gathered together, hotels, government buildings, train stations. They were shooting for days and just slaughtering innocent people day by day. After the whole thing was done, several people who had survived were interviewed after the fact. One gentleman specifically was interviewed, and he said that he was right in the middle of one of the worst tragedies in that entire week of tragedy. He was able to survive even though everyone else around him was killed. And the reporter asked him a question, how were you able to survive? And this gentleman simply responded, I was covered in someone else's blood that makes sense? I was covered in someone else's blood. And right from the beginning, this is what God was doing for us. This is what God was doing right from the garden. He was saying, I will make sure that you do not get the punishment or you do not get the end that you think you'll get because I'm going to cover you in someone else's blood. And that's what's happening right from the beginning. So time is moving on. So let me move quickly. Adam separated from God. Abraham comes closer to God. God makes a covenant with Abraham. God says, I will not go against my word, and he continues that relationship with Abraham. But again, it does not happen overnight. 400 plus years, the people and the generations of Abraham are in slavery in Egypt. For over 400 years, they are separated from God again. They can't worship God. They are in a place of bondage and they cannot reconnect to God. And even in the midst of that, God liberates his people. God sends his law to his people. Moses is able to bring his law to the people, rescue the people And again, you will see God's hand upon his people, not for their sake necessarily, but for his sake and for the promise he made to Adam right in the garden. That promise, that perspective still continues. Over the course of generations, there would, be, there would be prophets that would rise up in the people of Israel. There would be judges. There would be kings. They would all rise up. David was among them. He would rise up. But there's a common theme throughout that you all you need to do is put your trust in me, have faith in me, obey my commands, and watch what I do for you. But man, over and over again, separates himself from God. He sins, violates the law, separates himself from God. An animal is sacrificed. He reconciles to God. He sins again, sacrifices an animal, reconciles to God. And this process of sacrifice and bloodshed for the sake of sin continues for generations. But here's the problem. No sacrifice was ever going to reconcile us fully to God. Even if the blood of an animal was spilled, it was not enough to reconcile us fully to God. There would have to be a greater sacrifice that was being pointed to right from the beginning. And so over time, we continue just like the people in history. We wonder, how can God fit into my plan? How can God fit into my perspective? Meanwhile, God is saying all along, don't you see the big picture of what's going on? Every one of us fit into that big picture big picture, but we become so obsessed with how we and our world is motivated and blessed and changed by God rather than how can we fit into the grander perspective of what he is doing. How can I get God to fit into my vision, my desires? And somewhere along the way, we lost track of the narrative. The rest of the Bible is filled with this narrative. We go from those prophets, those judges, those kings. We go from, we go from uh, the exile and, and we see the kings that come up and rise up. We see the temple being built and we see the temple being destroyed. We see so much history throughout the word of God. And it all ultimately points to one thing that's about to happen. Here's the amazing thing, and there's a pastor who wrote a book, Pastor Tim Keller, who wrote a book, and he, and he explains it this way, that if Shakespeare writes a book and you read a book from Shakespeare, let's say Hamlet, you will never fully know Hamlet because Hamlet is not real. He is in the mind of Shakespeare. He is not real no matter how much you read about him. But the difference with Jesus Christ is that He's not only written into the pages of the book, He is real and you can know Him. You can have a connection with Him. You can have a relationship with Him. And this entire book points to the moment when Jesus Christ enters the world and Jesus Christ takes on a sacrifice that we could never make on our own so that we can be reconciled back to God, so that we can understand grace in its fullness. And I want to share with you just for a moment. If any of you, especially, have ever had the question is Jesus the promised Messiah? Is Jesus the Savior that we've always expected? Is Jesus the one that we should have always been praying to, worshiping, living for? Was He the one? I want to share with you again, 66 books, 40 authors, 1,500 years. The people mostly did not know each other. Most of the authors never knew each other, never lived in even the same era with the other authors. Yet there is a continuity in here. There is a continuing truth that is being told in here that cannot be found in any other historical document ever. I want to share with you some examples of that. I want to share with you a list of prophecies that were made about Jesus hundreds of years before he was ever born to Mary in Bethlehem. I want to read those to you, and let's find out if any of them come true. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we read this morning that he would be the seed of woman. Jesus was. Genesis 49, verse 10 says that he would be from the tribe of Judah. Jesus was. Second Samuel chapter 7 says that he would be from the line or the lineage of David. Jesus was. Micah chapter 5 says that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Jesus was. Isaiah chapter 7, written hundreds of years earlier, said that he would be born of a virgin. Jesus was. Daniel chapter 7 said that he would be one as the Son of Man coming on the clouds with fire. Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man 88 times in the Gospels. Daniel chapter 9 says that Messiah would be rejected before the destruction of the temple Jesus was Isaiah chapter 9 says his ministry would be in Galilee Jesus was Isaiah chapter 9 says that he would be a healer that he would bind the broken hearted Jesus did. Isaiah chapter 53 said that he would be despised and rejected, especially by his own people. Jesus was. Zechariah chapter 9 says that he would make a triumphal entry into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. Jesus did. Zechariah chapter 11 said that he would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. Jesus was. There are visions and there are verses talking about his birth, his life, him being betrayed, him being beaten, him being crucified, that his garments would be parted, that he he would be placed in a rich man's tomb. Even the words that he would say on the cross were predicted hundreds of years earlier. If you and I have a question, is this the right one? My friends, I believe he is the right one. There is no way to look at it otherwise than to see that Jesus is the one that was promised. And after hundreds of years of prophecy and hundreds of years of perspective, we finally see the moment that he goes and dies on the cross, the perfect sacrifice is made and we can be reconciled back to God at that moment. There is no no sheep, there is no cattle that can be sacrificed to pay for our sins. There is no magical prayer that can be said to to, to reconcile us back to God except for what Jesus did on the cross. We will never fully grasp what grace looked like. He experienced torture like we would never imagine. His beard was plucked from his face. A crown of thorns was placed upon, upon his head We know that he was mocked, he was ridiculed, he was beaten, whipped, and tortured. All of this for our sake because of the grace that he wanted to show us on the cross. And now the question comes. We have this grander perspective of everything that God was doing. And now we have to ask ourselves, have we been living in light of that perspective? Do we have perspective on what God has been doing? All of that torture, all of that agony, the book of Mark records it with four words, and they crucified him. He experienced all of this for you and I so that you and I can be reconciled back to God through a gift that is called grace. And in the verses we read today in the book of Romans, there is a clear contrast being drawn, a clear contrast between two people. The contrast is between Adam and the contrast is between Jesus. The sin of Adam and the grace of Jesus. The magnitude of the terrible thing that Adam did and the magnitude of the great thing that Jesus did. We know this, that if you compare two similar things, If you compare them, you can better describe them if you compare them. Let's say, for example, that I was going to compare my son, Ethan, to another child. Here's my son, Ethan. You've seen him before. You know what he looks like. You know what he sounds like. He's the one that usually doesn't stop talking when you're around. Ethan has a lot of things that I can describe about him. In fact, if if I were to say, describe Ethan, many of you might say that he's a funny little child, he's got a cute little smile, or that he's very happy. That might be what you might say about him. But here's a little piece of trivia. Do you know Pastor Brian and I both became fathers the same week? Our, Our children are just three days apart. And if I said, why don't we compare Ethan to Pastor Brian and Lori's daughter, Caitlin, and I put them side by side, now suddenly you have a new way of describing Ethan. You would say that Ethan has short hair. You would say that he has a darker complexion. You would say that Caitlin has longer hair or that Caitlin is slightly taller. You would find ways to separate them by comparing them. It's something that happens when there are two like things or two similar things brought in contrast to each other. It helps us describe them better. And this morning, this is what Paul is simply doing. He's showing you what Adam did, what one man did, and how sin entered the world and death entered the world through this one man, and then he is showing you what Jesus did, and how life and obedience entered the world through this one man. It's because of Jesus Christ, as we sang this morning. Adam brought sin and condemnation. Christ brought righteousness and justification. Adam brought death into the world. Christ brought life into the world. And this is how we have to look at it. In comparison, we all identified with Adam at one point, but the day that we accept Christ into our hearts, we identify with Christ from that day forward, and this is why the gift is not like the trespass, because the gift is so much greater than the trespass. The gift is so much more wonderful than what Adam did. The sacrifice of Jesus is on a much higher plane than anything that Adam was able to do. There is no analogy I can give you. There is no metaphor I can give you. But let me try a very, meek, a very meek, a weak one. Grace is not like a police officer pulling you over, speeding at 100 miles an hour in a 35 zone, looking at the ticket and tearing up the ticket in front of you. That may seem like grace, but you know what? Ultimately, the police officer doesn't really get affected in any way. There is very little sacrifice on the part of the police officer. Grace is more like this that you and I are guilty of murder. We walk into a courtroom, and the judge knows that all the evidence is piled up against us. And the judge decrees, based on the law, you have to face the death sentence or life in prison without the possibility of parole. But this is what grace looks like. The judge then gets up, takes off his robes, steps down from the bench, turns around, lets the police handcuff him, and he takes the sentence for you. That's what grace looks like. And that's a very weak comparison. It's a very weak analogy, but that's what grace looks like. It's so much more powerful than a ticket being torn up. It's someone else taking your place and my place. And the reason why we have joy, the reason why we have life, the reason why we are reconciled back to God is because the greatest king, the darling of heaven, stepped down from his throne and took your place and took my place. Grace has to be seen in perspective. From the beginning of time, this was the plan of God to put grace into perspective for you and I. Just as sin was brought into the world through Adam, life was brought into the world through Jesus Christ. This one who created everything, he ruled everything, he broke the law in nothing, he loved me on nothing, and he himself became nothing. For something that was of precious worth to him, and that was you, and that was me. He gave everything as he hung up on that cross. The world may say anything to try to downplay this love, but something kept him on that cross. It was love. It was grace. It was the only thing that could save you and me. This nothing that deserved none of that, and that's what grace really is. All he asked was one thing in return. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. All throughout history, men and women have given their lives for their king. I was just recently reading about King Xerxes of Persia, that one day Xerxes is, is said to have been in a great storm where the ship was being tossed to and fro, and the captain comes and says, Lord Xerxes, who they, who they referred to as the god king, they said, Lord Xerxes, Our ship is about to sink. We have to unload some of the weight off of the ship so that we may survive. And Xerxes, before he could even turn around and determine what to do next, several of the men stepped up and volunteered and said, For you, Lord Xerxes, we will gladly die. And they threw themselves off the ship to lighten the load. All throughout history, men have been dying for their kings, but this is the one time in history the king died for his men. And that's what grace looks like. That's the amazing perspective that we have on grace this morning. Here's a verse from Ephesians. In order that he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this not from ourselves, it is the gift of God. This morning, my friends, when you walk through adversity, when you walk through the struggles of life, I want you to put grace in perspective. When you think that you are all alone, remember the king of all kings was willing to die for you. How much are you actually worth then? Put grace in perspective this morning. Paul was doing it to the church in Rome saying that Adam sinned. He separated us from God. And all throughout history has been a trek. As man continued to separate himself from God, God continued to pursue man. God continued to pursue each of us. And that is grace in perspective. This morning, if any of you sitting here have not accepted this grace, remember again how the Bible puts it. It is a free gift. It's a free gift. It doesn't mean it's a cheap gift. Let me put that in perspective. The gift came with the highest price possible, but it's a free offering to you this morning. And if you have not accepted that gift for yourself today, this is an opportunity to do that. It's a simple offering from Jesus to you saying that I loved you with a grace that began at the beginning of time and I've been pursuing you ever since because I can't stop loving you to the point I gave myself. Let's all bow our heads and close our eyes in the presence of God this morning. As our worship team comes forward again to lead us in worship for a few more minutes, there is a question that we must ask ourselves. Do I fully take the time to understand grace every day of my life? And here was a God who was willing to give all so that I can live. And next week when we come back, we'll talk more about how we should be living in light of that grace. But all we need to ask ourselves this morning, do I understand the grace that was shed on me? Do I get the free gift that was offered to me? And if you are feeling alone this morning, if you are feeling against all odds this morning, remember Abraham felt that way. Remember Moses felt that way. But they were all part of the plan of grace. Today you may feel like everything is against you, that nothing is going right this morning, but let me remind you, you are in the plan of grace. That grace is a free gift offered to you. Grace is available to you. It is available and not only available, it is powerful. It is life-changing. It is a gift that will change everything. And in just a few minutes, Alyn and I will be up in the front. Uh, we'll be available to pray for you, whatever the needs may be, whether they are physical, spiritual, emotional. But if there's any of, of you that would say this morning, I want this gift. I recognize from the beginning of time there's been one narrative and I am a part of that narrative. I have an option, yes or no, in that narrative. If any of you would like to make that decision this morning, we would love to pray for you this morning. God, in his love, in his grace, offered you a free gift. From the beginning of time, he's been offering you that gift. Now the ball is in your court. What are you going to do with that gift? Will you accept it this morning or will you reject it this morning? Let's pray together. God, we thank you because grace is a gift that we did not deserve. But over and over again, you sought us out and you made sure we understood the depth, the love, the depth of that love that you showered on us. My Lord, this morning, I ask that for every heart that is far from you, every person that is struggling in their, in their battle with you and knowing whether I should draw closer to you or should I stay where I am, every person would understand the value of the gift that you offer this morning. For just as sin entered the world through one man and with it death, thank you, Jesus, that through you life entered the world, life eternal entered the world. And the gift is not like the trespass. It is so much greater than ever, anything we could ever imagine. God, I pray for every person going through a struggle this morning, spoken or unspoken, everyone who wants to grow closer to you, help us to put grace into perspective as we make every decision every day. Thank you for your presence this morning. Be be glorified as we worship you today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's worship the Lord together.